The Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine over the long term. In other words, emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, a big picture view of the markets. What's crashing, what's surviving, and is anything thriving? We'll also discuss what we're doing to protect our employees at Orion, safeguard portfolios, and stay in touch with you, our clients, as we weather the storm together. That's with our guest, Director of Research at Orion Portfolio Solutions and Senior Portfolio Manager, Koshi Edis. Plus, my interview is with Peter Sousa, Director of Portfolio Strategies at Lim & Gregory. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Well, the market turmoil is not letting up, unfortunately. While the coronavirus crisis continues to shake markets around the world, one way we are responding at Orion is to increase the amount of communication our clients receive from us. We want to stay engaged with you, be there to answer whatever questions you have, and keep you informed on how we are responding during this really turbulent time. So, Rusty, what are some of the ways we are communicating with our clients right now? Well, probably the, the biggest new thing that we're doing is we are shooting a daily five to seven minute video called the Orion Portfolio Solutions Daily Market View. Um, basically just giving an update on you know what has happened in the markets over the preceding day, um, kind of what our expectations are in terms of market behavior moving forward, and um, any other information we find that might be relevant and reassuring to advisors and investors. Um, basically, our, our key message there is, as you would expect, I mean, we've got some dark days ahead in terms of headlines and infection rates uh, moving higher in the U.S. And associated with that, there's just going to be a lot of volatility. So that is just to be expected and just sort of reassuring advisors, investors, that's what we're going to be seeing. In addition to that, of course, uh, we're, we are writing more commentary. We're doing a lot more presentations. We're doing a lot of webinars. We're doing a lot of calls. Um, a lot of those aren't necessarily set up on a daily or weekly basis at this point. They're just coming up as they needed. Uh, but uh, workloads have never been higher here. It is, it is um, the energy and adrenaline is high. I can say that from a professional standpoint, not necessarily from a personal standpoint, but from a professional standpoint, is a pretty exciting time to be an investment manager. Obviously, some of the most attractive um, valuations we've seen in a long time. And more importantly, it's a very exciting time to be an investment counselor. I mean, this is really what we train for. This is where we really help investors succeed. And having been through two of these bear markets that have been scary, and never mind all the you know, the shorter-term events that were scary too over the last 30 years of my career, uh, I, I know for a fact that this is the time investment counselors really prove their worth and can really help investors on their long-term goals. All right. Well, before we get to the latest on the markets, I also want to let listeners know what we're doing to protect our employees here at Orion and, of course, to safeguard our client portfolios. Well, the biggest thing that we've done here at Orion to protect employees is, um, well, we haven't directly forced everybody to stay home. We basically have. I mean, we probably have maybe 5% of employees in the office, and those are in essential roles uh, they basically have to be in. 
Uh, basically, everybody's working remotely, and quite frankly, everything's working great. I mean, there might be some issues here and there with internet connections with some people, but in terms of performance of client service, trading, all the key functions, everything has been great. Um, at this point, in terms of Omaha, the amount of infections have remained low, but I think the community has been pretty proactive, uh, all things considered. I mean, Omaha is going to take a big economic hit already. Uh, they've already sort of uh, Berkshire Hathaway meeting, College World Series, NCAA basketball tournaments have all been canceled. So we will take an economic hit, but uh, but kind of like what 9-11 was, was, like the community has really come together. And then Orion, um, I think that you've seen sort of, um, we've really come together as well. In terms of what we've done with client portfolios, it's been very active here. And, you know, really, uh, the, for the most part, two things. One is we built portfolios with different market environments in mind. So, yes, we thought the markets could go higher, but the way we always do our outlooks is that we don't say, the market's going to be up 8%, we basically force ourselves to think in distribution. So what are the chances we could have a 20% loss? We think about that and everybody attaches a probability to that. Obviously, in hindsight, everybody probably have upped those numbers, but we built those portfolios in mind. So in terms of big changes, they're not really required. Besides, most of our portfolios are risk budgeted, which means we are managing to a targeted level. Our tactical strategies, and when we say tactical, of course, that means something that can radically change its asset allocation or its risk. And in that case, we've been very decisive and we've had uh, the maximum move we could make in terms of raising defensiveness. That is merely rules-based. Um, there's no judgment. It's just simply trading off of what the market is doing. This all said, so if you're an account that is uh, um, not taxable, so if you're in a retirement account, big changes are not really needed. Uh, at the asset allocation level, your risk tolerance may be revisited and, and a conversation with an advisor might be important because either your um, financial capacity for risk has changed, which is probably the case for most people, or your um, psychological or emotional capacity for risk is also probably needs to adapt as well. Th those conversations have to take place, but otherwise portfolios are in a pretty good spot. We will be making changes. Volatilities create opportunity. That all said, if the portfolio is not a retirement account, but it's a taxable portfolio, we've been extremely active. It depends on the strategy because this is a time to uh, sell positions at a loss, move into similar market exposures. So basically, you're maintaining your overall asset allocation or market exposure. What you're doing is you're realizing a tax loss. And the reason why you do that is you can use that to offset future gains. So Despite how deep and dark this hole is right now, uh, if you're in a taxable account, you can be creating genuine economic value by doing tax loss selling. And that's really important. Okay, let's take a look at the markets. Obviously it's changing by the minute, but let's take a big picture look at market sectors. What's crashing, what's surviving? Well, if we kind of go to probably one of the more relevant timeframes at this point, and when the market peaked in uh, the middle middle of February is kind of what's doing best. And needless to say, virtually everything is down. Cash has a slight gain, but bonds are slightly down. And then when it comes to the stock market, everything is down double digits. The sector that's held at best is the one that a lot of people think would probably have held at best, and that is consumer staples. So those are your grocery stores, your drug stores. They've done best, but they're still down 15 20%. Um, Energy stocks are down over 50%, and that isn't just coronavirus, of course. That is also due to uh, the battle between OPEC and Russia and how it impacted energy prices, so they've dropped. 
Now, I cite these numbers. The market, again, is extraordinarily volatile. Um, by the time we do a podcast next, I think obviously the news flow and infection rates will clearly be worse between here and then. It's not a given that the market will necessarily be down at that point. Uh, it just depends on sort of the growth rate of, of the infections in the U.S. And so these numbers could change dramatically. They could be a lot worse or they, quite frankly, could be a lot better. So you mentioned some of the sectors that are doing okay. Is there anything that is thriving in this environment? Anything that's thriving? Um, well, not really. I mean, if you go from the market peak to now, the only thing uh, in terms of major asset classes or major sectors, it is really cash is the only thing positive. Obviously, there are relative winners. Uh, again, these things will change. Uh, long-term treasuries have had some incredible volatility as well. Uh, long-term treasuries are kind of the ultimate safe haven, the ultimate portfolio diversifier, particularly when stocks get hit. Uh, those and that's still mostly the case. The dynamics change a little bit, uh, where if you're using treasury exposure to, to safeguard a portfolio, it's probably better to try to emphasize shorter durations now instead of going out too far. And the reason why is, and we'll probably talk about it later here, is that the government is just basically, they need to issue a lot more debt uh, to pay for all the support systems they're putting in place for the economy. That much debt into the bond market will all else be equal, make interest rates rise, particularly for longer maturities. Okay, well, so some of the industries that are really being hit hard by this crash could potentially be bailed out by the federal government. I'm thinking specifically of the airline industry. But if they are bailed out, there is some discussion of attaching strings to the grants or loans that they receive. So some airlines have spent years of record profits buying back stock instead of building rainy day funds, and that could potentially be restricted as a condition of receiving bailout funds. So how would a restriction like that impact the attractiveness of airlines as investments? Oh boy, this is, this is loaded. So I think I've already given too long of answers to every one of your questions, but I got three quick comments about this. So first of all, let's talk about buybacks in general, not just for airlines, but just for the market in general. And my, my line of thinking in this is kind of changing. I have actually was worried that buybacks would be kind of a political football and they would be taken away because buybacks, uh, you could argue, have been one of the major reasons for the bull market over the last 10 plus years. Interest rates are so low, companies issue more bonds, and with those bonds, they usually buy back their stock. It's been kind of a common template. And so if interest rates rose or if the government um, you know, put restrictions on buybacks, that would take away a big source of buying power for the market. However, in this case, where my thinking has changed, if companies aren't buying back stock, then that means they're going to put their money towards other purposes, and that is either towards employee paychecks, uh, whether it's to um, uh, capital expenditures. It could just be to other things that will be, I think, better for uh, the company and for the employees as opposed for the shareholders. And I think that's important in this particular case, which ultimately would be good for the shareholders. Uh, as for the airlines, this is interesting because the easy answer is these things are going to get hit pretty hard. Um, obviously, with travel uh, plummeting, it's going to be kind of like 9-11, um, where travel is definitely going to be impacted for a while. Uh, I do think, though, for the long-term patient investors that airlines are attractive. We have seen some pretty smart people step up. I would not be surprised, and uh, these are just my own words, but I would not be surprised to see somebody like Warren Buffett buy up an airline. I mean, he's got plenty of cash. He could buy like all of Delta easily. It's something he could do. 
one last comment real fast, and I think this is interesting, is that uh, so uh, companies aren't buying back their stock, but corporate executives, so the insiders of these companies, so the ultimate smart money, they're actually buying back their own company stock at the highest levels in over 20 years. Now, stock buybacks themselves, so when the company buybacks its own stock, so we're talking about the corporation, that's actually not a great signal for future market returns, so um, generally speaking. But when company insiders for their own personal accounts are buying back their own company stock, that is usually a strong signal, and that buying is as strong as, again, it, it has been again in over 20 years. Okay. I'll try to be shorter moving forward. Maybe we should have coaching right. talk pretty soon. <laughs> There's just a lot to talk about. Um, okay, so one yeah. other thing I want to ask about, uh, and that is that Congress is working to pass a stimulus bill that as of now appears to include cash payments to households across the country. Um, the Fed has also slashed interest rates and is, of course, funneling mon money into financial in institutions to shore up lending. What more are we hoping to see from Washington? Well, a couple comments here. So first of all, the monetary policy and the fiscal policy has been tremendous. And um, it's kind of a poor analogy to say that coronavirus is like a really big snowstorm, because in some ways that really understates the severity of it. But in some ways, it's, a, it's an apt analogy because it, 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 you know, there is some hopefully temporary uh, nature to it. But when that leaves is the fiscal policy and the monetary policy is, again, ex simply extraordinary. In terms of what we could hope to see, though, and I think it's really important uh, for the fiscal policy to pinpoint, obviously, it has to hit individual consumers, particularly those that have been compromised. Think about all the hospitality staff that, you know, lived off tip money that's not getting it. There's going to be a lot of financial stress there. They also need to help small businesses. A lot of the support goes to corporations because it's, you know, corporations have the lobbyists. It seems like it's got the greatest impact. They've got the most employees. You know, for whatever reason, corporations usually get the most benefit. They really need to make sure they're helping small business as well. And I think that will help alleviate the pain quite a bit. Okay, one more question before we bring in Kostya. Um, we talk a lot about market cycles on this show, and we've talked about the historic bull market that ran for 11 years and is now um, over. We knew it wouldn't last forever, but here we are. Um, a global crisis on the scale is quite unprecedented, of course, and at least very rare. So what historical reference can we use to try to understand what's happening today? Well, only history will tell. So for the most part, as of right now, this is really more of, um, of a health issue than it is a financial issue in terms of kind of the inner workings. Now that said, the longer this stretches out, it, it, the financial impact is, is going to be extraordinary. And well, first of all, GDP estimates for the second quarter are going to be uh, incredibly negative. Uh, but again, hopefully there's more of a temporary nature to it. Uh, what we had in 2008, there was some serious structural problems and uh, that was really scary in a lot of ways. Um, you know, people were living normal lives for the most part, but in terms of the economy and the system. Um, and at this point, the Federal Reserve, and for instance, even their move they made um, nights ago when they came in on Sunday night with all that liquidity, it sounded like maybe they were scared about the stock market. What they were really doing, they were shoring up sort of the inner workings of the fixed income markets. You know, stuff that, that most people don't really care. I mean, they don't really watch, but it, it's super important. And they, they came in and proactively helped in. At this point, it normalized it, which was very big. So let's talk about the health issue. So a lot of people are talking about SARS and MERS uh, over in Asia. And so I think those are good starting points. In fact, we've talked about it. We've talked about it on this podcast. But I think at this point, it's much bigger than those. 
and probably a more apt um, epidemic to look at. And one I'm really surprised that people just didn't really study more as they were growing up is the Asian flu from the late 50s. Obviously, most of the mar uh, market participants weren't managing money in the late 1950s, but the Asian flu um, started over in Asia. It came over to the United States in the summer of 1957. The market responded almost immediately, had a tough second half of the year. Uh, the market ended up being down 14% in the year. So I forgot what the gain was going into when it hit here, but it was probably a 20% loss off those highs. Um, and quite frankly, just the way the market works now, the volatility is more extreme, and I could, I could comment on that later. But anyway, that was pretty bad, and we saw uh, the economic hit by the late, uh, late part of that year as GDP dropped by 4%. Well, GDP dropped by 10% in the first quarter of 58. So that was basically what some of the expectations people are looking at here in the United States. Nearly 100,000 people died. Actually, I just exaggerated up. I think it was 70,000 people died. That's significant. Um, 70,000 people died during the Asian flu in the U.S. And what happened to the economy and the markets and during that time is that after the first quarter of 58, for the next five quarters, the U.S. economy just screamed higher, had uh, annualized GDP growth rates of 8%, which is just a huge number, and the stock market was up 40% in 1958. The market churned um, in the first quarter. So the market started moving higher when GDP actually dropped 10%. That's going to happen in this case as well. So I do think that's the more apt uh, precedent. And um, again, I'm just surprised, you know, when we, when we learned in our history classes about various things, it's like, why don't we spend more time studying things like the Asian flu? Because that stuff's going to happen to us, right? Right, exactly. Um, well, let's bring in our guest, Director of Research at Orion Portfolio Solutions and Senior Portfolio Manager, Kostya Enos. Kostya, thanks for waiting. Welcome to the show. <laughs> no problem. Great to be here. So, Kostya, it's really important right now, of course, that investors and advisors remember to keep the big picture and long-term in mind um, during times like these when markets are really volatile and watching your portfolios can be just really stressful. So what can investors and advisors do to keep themselves calm? Well, it's always important to remember that investing is a long-term game. Uh, most of us are investing for our retirement, which is a long time away. Even when you're in retirement, you're in retirement for a long time. So the best advice is sometimes to just lean back, don't look at your portfolio, maybe turn off the news, watch some Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, well, many of our listeners may be working at home right now. We're all calling in um, via Zoom. Rusty is still in the office. But, um, so you might find that you have some extra reading time. And if that's the case, we encourage you to take a break from news updates and check out some of the resources that we have available that might be helpful during this time. Um, Kosha, you mentioned some of those in your most recent weekly three. Can you run through them? Yeah, absolutely. So we at Orion provide a ton of resources for advisors and clients uh, to try and help them uh, manage these volatile times, one of which, and my personal favorite, is called the Quarterly Reference Guide. Um, it has a ton of fun, colorful charts, easy to understand, and quick bullet points uh, explaining what they're showing and the impact of some of these charts is really great. Uh, one of which uh, I highlight, um, it shows how volatile the market can be in any given year. Uh, what we do is we plot returns uh, all the way back to the 1940s 
and each year you see two different colored bars. Uh, one bar shows the total return for that year, and the other bar shows how much the market, uh, what's the most the market fell in any given year. So basically the peak to trough every single year. Um, you, you can see there's a lot of downward negative bars in the chart, but overwhelmingly, the total returns are positive every year. So the main point is, it's uh, really important to stay invested in the markets. You don't want to miss out on the long-term potential. Uh, when, you, when you look at the long-term averages, the average maximum decline is actually more than 10% per year. So every single year on average, the market at some point falls more than 10%, but the average total return for the entire year is actually positive 8%. So for example, one of the years that's most staggering is 2009. During 2009, the market experienced almost a 30% drop, but for the entire year, it had over a positive 20% return. You didn't really, you would not have wanted to sell out of the market during any time during that year. Stay invested, stay the course. That's where prof professional money managers kind of can help uh, benefit investors by uh, helping them stay disciplined, helping them stay invested, and better able to reach their long-term retirement goals. Kind of an interesting, um, some funny advice I heard recently in the current environment, it's really best to keep your hands off your face and keep your hands off of your retirement portfolio. <laughs> Good advice. Uh, well, I think I know what you're going to say um, to this next question, but I think it bears repeating. Um, we do talk a lot about this on the podcast that even when markets are swooning, it's, it's really always a good time to invest in the markets. Um, does that hold true even now with so much uncertainty and volatility as we're seeing? Yeah, uh, definitely. Anytime you look at a historic chart of the S&P 500 or really any equity market, it's a pretty sharp sloping line starting in the bottom left going to the top right. So the market is overwhelmingly um, in the green. It's positive over longer term periods of time. And you, you want to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. So in the next section, what I dis uh, there's uh, two more very impactful charts from the reference guide. And they show what is the typical average performance after the market has had hit a peak or an all-time high, and uh, what is the average return um, after a decline of more than 10%. So we looked all the way back uh, to 1926 at the S&P 500 and evaluated, you know, is it a good time to invest at market peaks or after severe declines? What's funny is that looking over uh, the following one-year, three-year, and five-year periods, um, you get double-digit returns, it, whether you're looking after market highs or after market falls of over 10%. I mean, stats like that are hard to ignore. <laughs> Essentially, you said it, but it bears repeating over and over. It's always a good time to invest. Right. 
Well, another one of your favorite pages from the quarterly reference guide is titled 94 reasons why people did not invest in the market. So it basically lists major news events, market scares that happened every year since 1926. That at the time, they may have been considered great reasons to ditch the markets, right? But each time, even when the market declined for a while, it kept climbing over time. So is this just another one of those events or is this kind of in a class of its own? You know, once again, this is another great piece. We also offer this as a stone standalone one-pager, which is great just to hand out to somebody. Um, while the reference guide, I will note, makes a great um, kind of a desk uh, corner piece to kind of show off to people. It looks, looks great when printed. Um, there are some staggering events on, the, on this list. We essentially show over the last 94 years, once again, going back to 1926, what has been the, mo the most staggering geopolitical event each year? So that would include um, the Great Depression, the, the, the market crash in the late 20s, you've got World War II, the Korean War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, the technology bubble, um, I mean, some. I, I understand the current situation seems dire, but some of these other situations were pretty dire as well. World War II was nothing to, to you know, scuff at. So when you um, think about all of these things, what if we take a look and see, you know, let's take a step back and take a look at the full picture. You know, let's not focus on the tree. Let's take a step back and evaluate what the forest looks like. And if you look at these events and plot them on the graph of the S&P 500 over history, once again, it's that strong upward sloping line. These events are tiny, tiny blips in the grand scheme of things in terms of how well the market performs over time. There are many, many reasons every year. There's multiple this year. It's not just Corona. You've got the oil crisis. You've got elections. There's always lots of reasons to not invest in the market. Um, but staying out of the market as you look at the growth of the S&P 500 is cl will clearly be detrimental um, to your long-term goals in investing. Good stuff. Good reminders right now. Well, Coach Jay, that's going to do it for this portion of the podcast. Thanks for being on the show today. Um, thanks, Robin. But can I make a quick movie recommendation? Of course. And I forgot I was actually going to ask you about that. Now that none of us can go to the movies, what should we be streaming at home? Well, um, if you wanted to uh, not only get some entertainment, but also get some information about the current situation, um, there's a fairly old movie um, that has been consistently at the top of um, the iTunes movie list, and it's called Contagion. Right. And it has a lot of parallels between the coronavirus. It, first off, it starts in China. Um, it's supposedly caused by a bat. Uh, the wrong bat meets up with the wrong pig, is how they describe it. <laughs> and um, Gwyneth, in the movie, Gwyneth Paltrow is the one that uh, first contracts the virus in China and then spreads it throughout the world. And um, in the current situation, the virus seems to have 
spread shortly after her Netflix show Goop premiered. So some people are saying Gwyneth Paltrow caused both viruses. Anyways, it's a great movie to in a lot a lot of uh, a lot of parallels about the situation right now. It's kind of scary, but uh, that is one movie to check out. All right. Any recommendations for if we want to stop thinking about the coronavirus? <laughs> Just... <laughs> um, Netflix uh, is actually obviously booming right now. Is for the first time ever they've uh, brought out the top viewed shows so or movies. So it's the top ten things on Netflix. And you know, I don't know if. If you're like me, I spend hours trying to figure out what to watch on Netflix, and I end up just giving up and going to sleep. Well, now you get the top ten, um, the, the top ten list basically. And so far, I've watched some of those, and it's just it just simplifies the process of finding something. And then um, uh, I have young children, and uh, Disney Plus has released Frozen Two three months mm -hmm. early just because of the coronavirus and as well as the new Star Wars movie. So they're available for streaming. And I want to say that's more or less saved my life. <laughs> I hear you. All right. Well, thanks, yeah. Coach Jed. Great to talk to you as always. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Next up is Rusty's Q&A. Today he talks to Peter Sousa from Littman Gregory. He's the director of Portfolio Strategies, which you guys talk about. We talked about a lot of stuff. So Lemon Gregory has been a longtime strategic partner of FTJ, which is a predecessor of Orion Portfolio Solutions. Uh, they've been around since the late 80s. Uh, they have been managing money for 30 years. They've been doing a lot of great commentary. I've been familiar with them for a couple decades myself. Peter is very knowledgeable. Our, uh, our interview went in depth on a variety of topics, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, let's take a listen. All right, well, today's guest on the Orion Portfolio Solution, the weighing machine, is Peter Sousa, Director of Portfolio Managers at Littman Gregory. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Rusty. Very good to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah, Littman Gregory, again, has been a longtime uh, strategic partner with uh, the FTJ platform, which is now, of course, Orion Portfolio Solutions. And I've been familiar with your work for decades now, going all the way back and I love your work. I love the way you guys think about the market. So I'm really glad you're on the podcast today. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and your firm. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, as you mentioned, my name is Peter Souza. I'm the Director of Portfolio Strategies with Lip Gregory. Uh, I've been with the firm for uh, about eight years now. And in terms of, of Lipman Gregory, um, we are a boutique asset management firm. We're located in Northern California, just outside of San Francisco. We currently manage a little bit more than $7 billion in total assets uh, across four different business lines, which include a uh, RIA business. Uh, we also have a research publishing business called Advisor Intelligence. We also offer fully outsourced discretionary uh, model portfolios. Uh, and then finally, we also have our own set of proprietary uh, multi-manager sub-advised mutual funds. Yeah, that's it. That sounds like a lie. That's a lot <laughs> that's of good it, stuff yeah. too. We try to we we try to keep it simple. Well, it got started back in the, really kind of the the newsletter, right? And when did the newsletter start? And and when did you start managing money again? 
Yeah, so you know, I think the the evolution of our firm is is really interesting, and I like to tell the story because I do think it provides really good context for advisors that ultimately uh, work with us. So, our firm was founded back in 1987 as an RIA. The firm was founded by Ken Pegri and, and and Craig Littman, and we were founded as an RIA here in Northern California, managing investment portfolios for high net worth individuals, foundations, and endowments um, here in the Bay Area. And then really beginning in 1989, we made the switch to, at the time we were investing each individual client portfolio, trying to customize each individual client portfolio. And really beginning in 1989, we moved to a more model-based approach where we created four risk-based model portfolios and we felt like each of our clients would fit into one of those uh, risk profiles. And in doing so, it really freed us up to focus our efforts on those activities that we really felt moved the needle, whether it be meeting with clients, uh, doing business development, or focusing on asset class and investment manager research. And so soon after that, in 1990, we launched the No Load Fund Analyst, which was a monthly newsletter that was sent out hard copy um, and, and in the no-load fund analyst, we published our uh, investment research, so our investment manager research, our asset class research, our model portfolios, and our in investment commentary. And we really started to gain a following um, through the no-load fund analyst that ultimately opened up doors for us to offer portfolios at various platforms like FTJ Fund Choice. Yeah. You know, I did get sort of the, uh, the origin story a, a little bit confused. Actually, I worked at a large registered investment advisor in Boston for years after I left Fidelity. And uh, they actually started as a newsletter in the late 80s and started managing money in 1990. So actually, that story was reversed. We did actually, I think, had a subscription to your newsletter uh, when I worked at registered mm -hmm. investment advisor. And we had a subscription when I was at Fidelity as well. So I've been doing money manager due diligence for decades and uh, used to read the newsletter all the time. Well, tell us a little bit about the investment philosophy. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think there's a couple of things that we really try to focus on and communicate to our advisors just so they have a good understanding of, of how we invest portfolios, our philosophy, how we think about uh, investments. And, and a couple of these, um, you know, I think are common across, you know, many different investment advisors. But for us, you know, we really try to take a long-term approach to investment. So our portfolios are constructed using both the strategic allocation, but we also have a tactical overlay. And for us, the uh, time horizon that we use when making tactical allocations is over a five-year period. So five years for us, it loosely represents a full market cycle. It gives us much more confidence in our ability to identify future trends and potential drivers of return. Um, we are very much fundamental and valuation-oriented investors. We think that over time, fundamentals and valuations will converge. We employ a uh, global perspective, so we invest across a globally diverse set of asset classes. Our equity allocation, for example, at the strategic level of the portfolio is 60% U.S. stocks, 40% international, and that 40% international piece is broken down between 20% developed and 20% emerging. So we certainly have a global exposure within our portfolios. Um, a couple other things, you know, I think we, we really try to incorporate a forward-looking uh, scenario analysis framework into our portfolios. And so simply what that means is that we try to think about the many different ways in which the future may unfold. And then we try to position our portfolios depending upon 
which scenarios we think are more or less likely to play out. And then finally, I think we also consider ourselves to be a manager of managers. So in our funds and in our portfolios, we leverage our reputation and expertise doing manager due diligence to gain access to some of the world's best investment managers to place into our funds and into our portfolios. Mm. So many questions here. Um, let's see. Well, mm. let tell us first a little bit about the Advisor Intelligence website. Yeah, so Advisor Intelligence is our um, uh, web-based, it's a subscription, and effectively, you know, what we've done throughout the life of our firm is really tried to share all of the research, investment communications, and model portfolios that we're providing to our own clients in our RIA business. We try to share that with other advisors, and, and the way in which we do so is through uh, Littman Gregory's Advisor Intelligence Service. So, um, Advisors can log into Advisor Intelligence and they get access to everything that they would need in order to manage the investment portion of their, of their book. So uh, it's basically an outsourced CIO type of function. Um, we provide advisors with access to our you know, risk questionnaires, investment policy statements. We provide them access to a suite of model portfolios that are available in different implementation options. So actively managed mutual funds, ETFs, uh, strategic and tactical portfolios. Uh, all of the portfolios are supported by, um, you know, monthly and quarterly investment commentary, PowerPoint presentations. Uh, in addition to that, we also publish um, asset class research, investment manager research. We have a uh, approved and recommended list. Uh, and we also offer access to uh, research from third-party firms. In addition to that, we also try to provide some of the content and research that we're using in our own wealth management business. So things like uh, tax planning articles, um, different types of wealth management articles that advisors can use with, use with their practice. So for us, you know, it, it's really it's a very effective way for us to leverage the research that we're doing internally for our own RIA business. And it gives us a way to share that research and, and communications with, and with advisors who are like-minded and, and who really respect the work that, that we're doing. That's great. Okay. So now let's get to a really fun question, which I'm really interested in. So how do you go about doing money manager due diligence? You say you find the best managers, and so when you're trying to find those best managers, what are those attributes you look for in those great investment managers? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And I'd say just to you know, provide some perspective, you know, we've been doing manager due diligence for, for over 30 years. And, and over that time, we think that we've really developed a process that does allow us to identify those select few managers that can continue to outperform over time. Now, having said that, you know, our process is incredibly time consuming and, and labor intensive. So it's, it's not unusual for our due diligence process on a manager to really last several years. Like that's happened a number of times since I've been with the firms. But, you know, we believe that in doing the hard work that no one else wants to do, we can continue to really add value by finding managers who are able to beat benchmarks over the long term. So, um, you know, we have a very disciplined and detailed process that we follow, and, and I won't get into the details today, but really at the end of the day, what we are seeking to do is identify managers that have a clearly defined investment process and some sort of identifiable investment edge that we believe is sustainable. So the 
manager's edge might come from their investment process and the discipline with which it's executed. It might come from their obsession with knowing their company so well that there's an informational edge. Other time, the process uh, might result in a unique way of looking at companies that can lead to better insights. Or, you know, it might the, the the investment edge might come from a combination of factors. So, um, for us, you know, the way in which we're able to figure out what that investment edge is, is really just through the process. It's through spending countless hours doing manager research, everything from reading monthly and quarterly investment commentaries, tracking the manager's buys and sells, you know, conducting phone interviews, in-person interviews, and in interviewing the analyst teams, conducting site visits, all, all of the work that you need to do in order to really understand uh, a manager, their thought process, and their decision-making process. Now, in terms of what some of the attributes that we look for, um, there are many, but just to, to name a few, I'd say um, first and most importantly would be, again, a clearly defined investment process that is disciplined in its execution. Uh, we want to be able to find a clearly defined investment edge. Um, we like managers who are independent thinkers, sometimes contrarian, but also managers who aren't afraid to admit or move on from mistakes. Um, and then we, all, we also want to make sure that we find managers who have a stable team. We want to make sure that the team is focused on investing. We don't want people that are out there marketing, trying to gain assets. We really want the people that we invest with to be um, focused exclusively on the investment management functions. For people who do uh, manager uh, due diligence, I mean, that's almost like a section to rewind to make sure you got taken, taking notes on it. That's pretty cool. All right, so the next question I have is really kind of a three-part question, and that is, so when we look at the Lipman Gregory strategies that are on the Orion Portfolio Solutions platform, uh, a couple things. First of all, could you tell us what those strategies are, but then in which environments do you think those strategies will perform well, and, and, which, and what's environments they won't perform as well in, and how would you blend those strategies with other strategies? Yeah, so um, let me unpack that a little bit. In terms of the products that we uh, offer on the platform, there's really two products that we offer. The first is our suite of um, uh, model portfolios. So we offer five risk-based model portfolios that run, uh, run along the risk spectrum. So you know, conservative, 80% fixed income, 20% equity portfolio, all the way up until 100% equity portfolio. Um, and those portfolios are offered in different implementation options. So they're offered using um, active managers, they're offered using ETFs, and then they're also offered with a combination of um, our own proprietary mutual funds along with ETFs. Uh, and then in addition to that, we also offer access to our um, Lim Gregory Masters Alternative Strategies Fund. The Alternative Strategies Fund is a multi-manager sub-advised uh, alternatives fund. Um, we think about it as being a core, all-weather, uh, lower risk, lower volatility alternative solution. So um, in terms of which environments are portfolios perform better and, and worse than, you know, I would say that um, our portfolios really, I think they tend to perform well when markets are connected to 
fundamentals and valuations when there is elevated volatility. And we also tend to perform very well around turns in business and, and market cycles. Um, similarly, our, our strategies don't tend to perform very well when markets get overly, expen overly expensive uh, and when there's a lack of volatility. So two of our most difficult periods include the late 90s and the latter half of this bull market that just ended. And I think if you're thinking about our portfolios, if, if you understand what we do, which is we have a long-term strategic allocation and then we'll implement a tactical overlay. We'll look to tactically overweight and underweight asset classes that we think are cheap or expensive relative to fair value. If you understand how we invest, it kind of makes sense for how our portfolios will perform in different environments. And if you look at the period post-financial crisis, it provides a great example of when our strategies will and won't perform very well. So in the five-year period coming out of the financial crisis, our strategies did uh, incredibly well. So there was multiple opportunities for us to tactically overweight risk assets, uh, including um, you know, significant overweights into high yield, uh, emerging market local currency bonds, as well as, as equities. And so in the five-year period following the financial crisis, our uh, portfolios outperform their benchmarks by more than 200 basis points annualized. Now, if you think about the, the most recent or the, the second five-year period following the financial crisis, our strategy struggled. So we are classic you know, value managers. And so as U.S. stocks continued to outperform and as they continued to get more and more expensive, we took opportunities to reduce our exposure to U.S. stocks and to reallocate to other investments or asset classes that hadn't performed as well, you know, things like European equities and emerging market stocks, or we underweighted U.S. equities in favor of lower risk diversifying alternative strategies, again, that didn't keep pace with, with U.S. stocks. And so over the, the past, you know, five or six years or so, our strategies have struggled because we have been um, reducing our exposure to risk assets and overweighting um, exposures that we thought provided very important risk management benefits. But um, in a very strong and extended bull market, our strategies will tend to lag. Now, so what you're saying right other, now, so what you're saying right now is basically we have your Lim McGregor is basically calling the churn in active management. We're going to finally have active be passive. That is going to start being growth and international starts being domestic. I love it. You heard it here love first. All that. You heard it here. Exactly. You heard it here first, Rusty. <laughs> all right. Well, we set word. that up in terms of, of people, process, and philosophy here, which is great, and uh, which I think is always the most important thing. But I bet a lot of people listening to this podcast, of course, really want to know what Limit Gregory's current assessment is of the market environment. Obviously, we have unprecedented volatility. So what is your what is Limit Gregory thinking about COVID-19? And, and given this environment, obviously, what is giving you the most concern, but also what is making you the most excited about the current market environment? Yeah, and, and look, I mean, we're still trying to really understand um, what the potential impact of the coronavirus is, both short and long term. And I think the reality is, is that yeah, nobody really knows, right? And so um, before getting into that, I, I just quickly want to say that you know, our, our thoughts are with everyone that's affected by the coronavirus, and, and we wish that all of our clients and our colleagues and our partners and their families stay as, as healthy as possible. So, you know, in terms of the market environment, um, it's been brutal. I mean, it's been, it's been absolutely brutal. And I think 
the thing that we have been most surprised about has been just how fast and indiscriminate the selling has been, how quickly the market has sold off. And I took a couple of notes before the podcast just to kind of illustrate that point. And and so from the S&P's all-time high in February, the 27% peak to trough decline in the S&P is the fastest in history from um, the market's all-time high. If you look at Europe and emerging markets, both of those markets are down more than 30% year-to-date. High yield is down 15%. Oil prices have suffered their biggest decline since the Gulf War, and the VIX is at an all-time high, surpassing levels even uh, that were reached during the financial crisis. And that doesn't even talk about some of the sectors that have been absolutely crushed, including the energy sector. Many Most energy stocks are down you know, 70 to 80%. Travel and leisure stocks are down 70 to 80%. Uh, banks are down 40 to 60%. So it's been just a, a brutal environment that has brought back memories of the global financial crisis. And so that to us has been um, incredibly surprising. Now, you know, I think in terms of our outlook going forward, you know, I think that the markets at this point are certainly uh, discounting a extremely high probability of a recession. And so um, for us, the most important thing going forward is is really just understanding how deep and potentially how long uh, a, a potential recession might last. And, and those are very critical questions, yet they are unknown at this point, uh, really as they relate to the spread, the duration, and the impacts of the coronavirus, among among other things. So, you know, Obviously, it's a very uncertain time. We think the market has discounted a great deal of this uncertainty. And so having said that, there are a couple of points that we feel are worth noting. And, and the first is that you know, coming into this downturn, the economy was actually in fairly decent shape. You know, if you think about it, coming into this year and at the early, early part of this year, most of the managers and strategists that we talked to and that we were reading were really talking about why the U.S. economy and the bull market had room to grow and about how a recession was, you know, one to two years away at least. And the second point is that, you know, the catalyst for the sell-off has been the coronavirus. Now, theoretically, there should be an end game to the virus at some point. So it seems reasonable that markets will rally when the news about the virus turns incrementally positive. Now, it's impossible to know whether or not the economy will remain depressed even after the panic subsides, but the strength of the economy leading into this downturn, combined with the significant amount of easing from a monetary policy perspective and with the strong fiscal stimulus response that we've seen, we think that that should provide a floor to the depth of any economic recession that we ultimately experience. So. At this point, we are treating the coronavirus as something that will pass eventually. And given the sell-off in equity markets, we are looking to add risk to our portfolios. So in terms of what we have been doing throughout this period, you know, I, I think it's really important to understand that coming into the sell-off, we were already defensively positioned. We were underweight to U.S. stocks by anywhere from 10 to 12 percent across our balanced portfolios. We also had overweight allocations in fixed income and diversifying alternative strategies, which have held up quite well in recent weeks, both in absolute terms and especially compared to global equity markets. So 
you know, coming into this uh, period of volatility, we had some dry powder in our portfolios. And so following the initial, you know, 20 to 25% sell-off in, in uh, markets, we added a modest amount back to U.S. stocks, anywhere from 2 to 4% across our balanced portfolios. And if the sell-off continues, which clearly it could, uh, we're going to be looking to add similar amounts back to our U.S. equity allocation. Great detail. I love it. All right. So also as a registered investment advisor, um, outside of obviously managing the portfolios themselves, as you know, we, we're investment counselors. So a uh, question is, what do you think makes a good financial advisor? What would you look for when you're shopping for a financial advisor? And what do you think a financial advisor should be doing in this environment? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and it's, it's interesting. We actually wrote an article about this a few years ago. Our founder, Ken Gregory, uh, just wrote about what clients should be looking for in a financial advisor. So um, it, the first thing that we would say is it, it's kind of similar to how we look at uh, investment managers. And so when looking at a financial advisor, you want to find somebody that has a clear uh, and identifiable investment process so that during periods of volatility, um, the advisor can point to their investment process to reassure clients that they are doing what they should be doing. Um, I think that communication is key, and oftentimes it's really not what you communicate, it's just the fact that you are communicating. And so we view our fiduciary responsibility as an advisor to maintain communication with our clients at all times to over-communicate, especially during times of stress such as these. Um, the other thing that I would say is, you know, again, tying this back to our investment approach and our investment philosophy, and, and that is really to take a long-term approach. Um, during periods of volatility, it's incredibly uh, difficult to maintain your um, your asset allocation to to stick with the long-term investment plan, and so um, you know being able to reorient clients towards that long-term view to help them understand that there are going to be periods of volatility, but that periods of volatility should really be viewed as um, opportunities to 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 buy, right? So um, you know I think that those are some of the most important factors when considering what a financial advisor should do. That's awesome. Okay, so let's move to something a little more fun. Probably a question I probably should ask you at the very beginning, but I um, I do love this question. And that is, okay, so imagine that you are a, you're a batter in baseball. You're about ready to come up to the plate. What is your walk-up song? Well, what is the song they're going to play for you when you <laughs> yeah. walk up? And to so, be honest, to give, a little, give you a little time to think, I my my song is by Radiohead, and the song is "I Might Be Wrong," just for just for an example. And um, I know you're in Northern California. All of you guys have that answer already figured out. Because isn't this like a big Silicon Valley question as well? You know, you're about ready. You got to present in your startups. You got to go out and have your song. What would you have? <laughs> yeah. First off, great choice by you. That's a that's a fabulous song. Um, awesome. Yeah, it's funny, you know. So so uh, I I played football. Um, growing up, I played football in high school. Played football in college, and in college there was a song that I used to listen to before every game, and it was um, "Rage Against the Machine" pulls on parade. And the song just used to get me incredibly 
motivated and, and hyped up for the game. So I can imagine myself strolling to the plate, listening to that song and <laughs> seeing the first pitch that comes down the plate, me swinging out of my shoes. So I think it would be <laughs> bulls, on, bulls on parade by Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> That's awesome. And I think Rage Against the Machine, they're still getting hosed by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think, aren't they? I don't think they're in yet. They probably should be. I think they've been on the ballot a few times. I could be wrong on that. I did see, though, that they are actually going back out on tour this year. There you go. See, they're going to try to get more votes to get in the Hall of Fame, though. That's why they're doing it, I bet. Not, it has nothing yeah. to do with the money, I, right? Well, Peter, well, hey, this has been sure. great. I mean, again, I've been a big fan of Lit McGregor. Again, a great strategic partner of Orion Portfolio Solutions. And obviously, given the firm's long track record of managing money and working with clients, your perspective, particularly in this current market environment, is invaluable. Any closing words? Yeah, I would just say um, thank you very much for the opportunity to appear in the podcast today. We are extremely excited to uh, work with, with you and all of the great people at uh, Orion. We've been super impressed with the work that you guys have done with the platform thus far. Um, uh, so, yeah, I guess I would I would leave it there. Just thank you very much for the opportunity. We really, really enjoyed appearing on the podcast today and would uh, appreciate the opportunity to do it again at some point in the future. Awesome, Peter. Well, be well, and we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Okay. You too, Rusty. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good stuff. That's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final thoughts. Stay balanced and stay the course. Be well and wash your hands. <laughs> We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com.